All right, I want you to turn in your Bible to Romans chapter 12. If you have a Bible, Romans chapter 12. I've entitled this today, God's Great Toolbox. God's Great Toolbox. Now, when I graduated from Bible college, it was over 40 years ago, one of the things I figured I needed, not because I graduated from Bible college, but just because it was something that I didn't have that I knew I was going to need, was a toolbox. And so being raised in a home where my dad was not a you know, a handyman or a carpenter or anything like that, I figured, well, I'll just get something that I can use as a toolbox. And of course, to me, the less expensive, the better. And so I bought this red plastic, actually, it wasn't even a toolbox, I don't think. I think it was a tackle box. And I bought it, and it was very cheap, all plastic. The entire thing was plastic. There wasn't one piece of metal anywhere on it. But that was okay, and I figured it would serve me. Well, within a period of time, even the hinge on it, when you open it up, that hinge was just molded. It was part of the body of the box. It was molded plastic. And of course, you know, if you use it all the time, that would eventually break. Of course, seeing I didn't use it all the time, it didn't eventually break. But other things did break over time. As a matter of fact, it wasn't very long. The little tray that when you open it, it would flip back for lures and stuff, which I didn't fish. And so... I would put bolts and stuff in there. But uh, that broke, and so yanked that out. That went. And that after a short period of time, now granted, I've got, I've got different wrenches of different kinds inside and so forth, and so the thing is starting to get heavy. And uh, the handle broke. And the handle, of course, was just plastic. And so what I did with that was I... Um, now, I'm not totally sure why I'm telling you this story, but it is related, I can promise you that. What I did, because I needed a handle, and I, was, I didn't want to go buy another box. I mean, the rest of the box worked. And so what I did was I found some of that, you know that elastic rubberized clothesline? It's usually like tan colored or whatever. I got some of that, and I cut off a piece, and I put it through the holes where the handle was, and then I tied knots inside to keep that up. And uh, it was a ridiculous setup. To be honest with you, I look back on it, it's kind of embarrassing that I kept it as long as I did. But I wasn't comparing it to anybody else's, so I figured it would work. And uh, it kind of worked. There were times when, because the latch on it was part of the body and it was just plastic, there were times when, uh, because of the weight of the tools inside, I would, I would pick the thing up and it would get about two feet off the ground and then it would undo and all the tools would go everywhere. Well, I put up with that for decades. Crazy. Why? Not necessary. Until it was last year. And last year I decided, you know what? This is it. I'm going to Walmart. And I found myself a toolbox. It was, it's made by Stanley. And it's, it's got, well, let me put it this way. It's put together a lot better. And when I got rid of the old one, I just looked at it and I thought, you know what? That was so inferior to what I have now. Why didn't I just go ahead and pay attention to this need and pursue that and get something new that would be a lot more efficient and that would last a lot longer? Of course, nowadays, you don't know if things are going to last longer or not, but I digress on that. This issue of toolboxes, though, I want you to think about that today as we open up here in Romans chapter 12, because we're going to be talking about God's toolbox. As a matter of fact, it's a great toolbox. And one of the things about God's toolbox that's great, number one, he is the designer of it. But number two, 
Not only did he design it, he is the one who actually designates the tools that are inside and how they work. You know, all tools, a lot of tools are different. And when you are going to use a tool to do a job, as an example, if you are going to screw a screw into a light fixture or, or, you know, a uh, power plug on the wall, you wouldn't use a hammer to screw that screw in. No, you would look for a smaller standard head screwdriver to put that in. Now, you could possibly use the end of the hammer, the claw part, but it would be awkward and you'd probably end up tearing the wall to shreds because of trying to get that in and turn it. Here's the point. God is the one who has the toolbox and he is the one who puts together the right tools to do the work necessary, all right? And so in Romans chapter 12 last week, we talked about this incredibly important commitment that God wants us to make once we've trusted Christ the Savior, once we're Christians. And here in Romans 12, it says in verse one, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Once we've trusted Christ the Savior, God wants us to respond to that wonderful gift that he has given us and that we would respond by presenting our lives to him, by dedicating our lives to him, by surrendering our lives to him, to let him do with our lives what he wants to do. He does have a plan. He does have a plan for you once you are a Christian, okay? And we see that God has a plan for every believer. Now, let me say this at the beginning. While obedience, once you're saved, while obedience is not automatic, we are saved to serve the Lord. God saved us to live for him. You might say, well, didn't he save me to keep me out of hell? Well, that's really our benefit. And yes, he saved us to keep us out of hell, but the picture is much bigger than that. We are not just justified, okay? We are not just free from the penalty of sin. He has saved us, and now we are free from the power of sin. And we have, of course, the promise, all people who are saved, that one day we're going to be free from the very presence of sin. We're going to go to be with the Lord. We are saved to bring glory to him, and he wants us to be his disciples. He wants us to be faithful. Now, not all Christians are disciples as God would want them to be. But nevertheless, this is something that God wants for every child of God. I want you to hold your place here and look at a a few familiar verses for us over to Ephesians chapter two. Turn there with me. And then we're not going to just look at verses eight and nine. We're also going to look again at verse 10. And I know we touched on these last time, but it bears repeating because they're so significant. Ephesians chapter two, verse eight, it says this, for by grace are ye saved. Now here it's talking about how to go to heaven, how to be saved from hell. For by grace are you saved through faith, faith in Jesus Christ. And that not of yourselves, we're not saved of ourselves. Salvation, it is the gift of God. Verse nine, not of works, lest any man should boast. So you see, friend, we're not saved by doing good works. We're not saved by serving. We're saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ, trusting in him that when he died on the cross, he completely paid for all of our sins. 
we're sinners. We don't deserve to go to heaven, okay? We are actually under condemnation, the Bible says. If this was you and me and this wallet represents our sin, we're sinners. And our sin separates us from God. And to go to heaven, you have to be sinless because heaven's a perfect place. The Bible says no sin will dwell there, not, not any at all. And so if you've sinned at all, in this condition, you are disqualified. No amount of good works take away sin. Nowhere in the Bible does it say good works pays for sin. No, rather it says the wages of sin is death. If we're to pay for our own sin, we would have to die and be separated from God forever, suffering in hell. But God doesn't want that for you and me. And so that's why he sent the Lord Jesus Christ. In this hand representing him, and he's sinless. He came, he died on the cross, he paid for all of our sin, and he rose three days later to prove it was done. And he says, if you'll put your faith in him, trust in him that he made that payment for you, he will save you by his grace, his unmerited kindness or favor. He'll save you by that. And you notice, It's through faith in Christ, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. Now, once you've trusted Christ as Savior, then verse 10 comes into the picture. And it says in verse 10, for we are his workmanship. He is, we are what God has made, the new birth, the new creation, child of God. For we are his workmanship, watch this now, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. We have been saved for the purpose of Good works, which God hath before ordained that we, you notice the next word, should walk in them. There's no guarantee that we will, but we ought to, okay? Uh, We don't have to, but we ought to. That is what the scripture tells us. Jesus said to his disciples in John chapter 15, he said, herein is my father glorified that you bear much fruit, so shall you be my disciples. So God's view of what a disciple is, is not just the learner, that is all that the word disciple actually means, but the idea from a biblical perspective is a disciple is somebody who not only learns, but applies what they learn, okay? Now, God does not recognize us as his disciples, okay, as true disciples, unless, number one, you've trusted Christ as Savior, And then once you're saved, it is your desire to go now and follow the Lord in obedience. We're not saved by good works. We're not kept by good works. We're saved unto good works. And there's a big difference. People say, well, what's the difference? Well, the difference is between heaven and hell. If you're trusting in the way you live, you're not going to heaven because you're trusting in your works. But if you've trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior, and then you respond to him, and you offer up your life, you present your life to him, which is what Romans 12, 1 and 2 is about. And then you, you set out now to serve the Lord and to follow him. That is God's will for my life and your life as Christians. This is a wonderful, wonderful plan that God has for us, all right? Now, for those of us who have the privilege to be a part of a local church like uh, Northland, a sound local church, by the way, we have a wonderful opportunity to give our lives to living for Jesus Christ and others. There's wonderful opportunity that the church brings. Now you might say, well, yeah, but I can serve the Lord without going to church. You can, but not in the same way that those who have the local church 
can serve the Lord. Yes, we can all be obedient. We can share our faith. We can pray for others and all of that. But there is something about, and I don't have to explain this to you at this point in history, there's something about face-to-face, okay? Face-to-face. There's something about that. And I know we have FaceTime and we have Duo for those of those on using Android devices. And, and by the way, if you want to FaceTime sometime, okay, if you're somebody who comes to Northland here and you need to uh, FaceTime, feel free to give me a call. Be glad to do that with you. But here's the point. Being together, being able to come together, there is an energy, there is an excitement, there is a, a rightness in the spirit that comes from that when you're together with fellow like-minded believers and we are unified and we come together to learn the word, to get equipped so that we can go out and serve the Lord. That is something that God has designed. That's why he says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of, of some is. Even in the days of the apostles, there were people who were stopping the meeting together with other people. They had stopped coming together. And God says, listen, we need each other. That's one of the ways God keeps us strong is by being together as a local church. And of course, there's a strain on that right now, but uh, we have that great privilege and God has designed it that way. We have a wonderful opportunity to give our lives to living for Christ and for others. Now, getting back to the initial example this morning about the toolbox, The local church is God's toolbox, all right? The local church is God's toolbox. And obviously, within it are the tools he uses to accomplish his work. And what are the tools? The tools are believers, okay? So God has his toolbox, and then he has tools inside to get the job done, and the tools are believers. Now, you might say, well, wait a minute. Isn't that one tool? No, As we're going to see today, there's many tools. Now, you wouldn't use the same tool. Again, I would not, if I wanted to hammer a nail into a piece of wood, I wouldn't use a pair of pliers. Now, you may do it over a long period of time, but you're going to have a mess on your hand. Things are not going to go well. If you wanted to hammer a nail into a piece of wood, what would you use? Well, you'd use a hammer because that's what it's designed for, okay? If you wanted to uh, twist wire, something like that, or cut wire, you'd use a wire cutter, or you'd use needle-nose pliers, or or something like that to where you could get that job done. You wouldn't use a, a saw to do that, a big saw. The right tool for the right job. Now, God's toolbox is the local church, and in it are believers, and each believer is a tool to be used in the hand of God. Now, this is very important for us to understand. How can we as a church be the most effective? God gives us, he lays out a plan here in Romans chapter 12, and we're going to bring a couple other scriptures in as well. But I want you to see it. Let's go to verse 3 now. Now, remember, verse 3 follows verses 1 and 2. In other words, once you get saved, then we ought to present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, Be not conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, which comes from taking in and practicing the word of God. And then in verse three, it says, for I say, for I say, in light of that, if we do that with our lives, as God wants us to, if we present our bodies as a living sacrifice to God, 
separated from the world, dedicated to him. Then, verse 3, For I say, through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. Now we're going to go through and we're going to notice certain things in this passage, all right? Look with me over to, uh, well, we're in verse 3. Hold on. The first thing is this. We need to have the right view of ourselves. We need to have the right view of ourselves. Do you see that in verse 3? Not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think, but to think soberly. In other words, we should see ourselves as God does. Now, how are we supposed to see ourselves? If you want to see yourself as God sees you, you go to the word of God. The word of God tells us how we actually are and how we should see ourselves. Here's the truth of it. We are defective sinners who have been saved by the grace of God. God has an infinite love for us, okay? And God is interested in us, but nevertheless, we are sinners saved by grace. And yet God in his grace and his mercy say, you know what? I know you're not perfect. I know you're defective in many ways. I know that if you got saved later in life, you brought baggage into your Christian life. I understand all that. My grace is going to be sufficient, though. I love you, and I want to use you. And yes, I know you've got problems, but I want to use you, and I want to transform your life to make you effective in reaching others. That's the way we ought to see ourselves. Now, if we see ourselves as redeemed sinners, if we see ourselves, yes, as children of God, but all of these truths together, then we will see ourselves as we ought to see ourselves. And we will think of ourselves as we ought to think of ourselves. We are God's children with the Holy Spirit living inside of us to empower us we're reading through the Bible, my wife and I, and it is amazing. You see in the, in the life of people in the Old Testament, and of course in the New Testament too, how flawed they were. I'm talking about even people written about in Hebrews 11 were, who are in the hall of fame of faith. They're flawed individuals, okay? And yet God used them to accomplish great things for God. Now that's not, that doesn't excuse their flaws, Okay, A lot of those flaws were choices they made. That doesn't excuse those, but what it does say is this. God still wants to use us. He still wants to use us. Hold your place here and look at Philippians chapter 2. We were here just um, in this passage on Wednesday night, but I want you to see this. Philippians chapter 2. We need to have a right view of ourselves. Philippians 2 and verse 3, it says, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. Isn't that interesting? Let nothing be done. So we're talking about serving Christ, living for the Lord. And it says, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. In other words, forget about yourself, look out, to the needs of other people and focus on meeting those needs. Now, again, you know, 
Uh, some people, they think, well, you know what? I'm, I'm low life. I can't accomplish anything. I can't do anything. I'm a mess. I'm this, I'm that. Dear friend, listen, the grace of God, if you're a believer, the grace of God is active in your life and you can do all things through Christ. You can put up with not only difficult situations, which is the context of there in uh, Philippians where it says, I can do all things through Christ, going through victorious through hardship, but not only that, God will empower you to accomplish his will. And you will find that God will use you if you want to be used. He'll use you. And then in the end, what do we say? All glory, honor, and praise goes to God because, listen, it's not my abilities. It's what God has done in and through my life. Now, that is the way we ought to think. And people who are thinking in that balanced biblical way are ones God will use to accomplish his will. Focused on others. The biggest obstacle we have is pride or inflated self-worth. Okay, you notice in verse three, we should not, back to Romans chapter 12, in verse three, it says, we should not think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. See, God has given each believer some faith to serve him. And not only that, he's given us spiritual gifts. Every believer has at least one spiritual gift. Now, where did that gift come from? It's not a natural ability. Let me say this. They are from him, and therefore we should not think we are something special above all others. All gifts are from God. All spiritual gifts are from God. Therefore, if God sees fit to use me to be a pastor and to preach and teach the word of God, this should not be something that goes to my head because I could not do that if it wasn't something that God provides for me. He provides the strength. He provides the mind. He provides the insight into scripture. He provides the energy. He provides all of it, the ability. And so all praise goes to him. Now, when we think in those terms, we are not thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. We're thinking soberly, or in other words, with a sound mind. That is the idea. So we see first off in verse three, Number one, we need to have a right view of ourselves. But secondly, in verses four and five, we need to have a right view of the local church. A right view of the local church. Friend, listen, I understand that all believers around the world make up the universal church, okay, the body of Christ. That's all the believers around the world, all those who have trusted Christ alone as Savior. I understand that. But God, he has a vehicle, he has a toolbox, again, to accomplish his work in a way that it can't be accomplished otherwise to the extent and to the completeness that God wants it to be accomplished. And that is through the local church. It is God's vehicle to fulfilling his work, okay? It is not an organization. It is an organism. We are the body of Christ. We are living. We are functioning. We are his hands and feet, okay? We as believers are connected, and we are not only connected, we are interconnected with each other. And this is what makes the local church, when it is functioning right, this is what makes the local church a glorious thing, a marvelous thing. Uh, Recently, I heard a, a song, and I just love where it talks about the local church, And it says this about the local church. It says, it's a harbor for souls where God is glorified, saints are edified, grace is multiplied, and mercy is magnified. Boy, isn't that good? 
Let me give that to you again. It is a harbor for souls where God is glorified, saints are edified, grace is multiplied, and mercy is magnified. That's the balance of the way local church is supposed to be. And that is the right view of the local church. Look at it in Romans chapter 12 and verse four. It says, for as we have many members in one body and all members have not the same office, so we being many are one body in Christ and every one members one of another. One of another. Number three, we need to have a right view of service our right view of service. In other words, living for Christ. Here's the point. It is a privilege to serve the Lord. I just kind of get beside myself a little bit when I see people who are born again, saved by the grace of God, and they don't have interest in spiritual things. They don't have interest. Listen, friend, uh, there are a lot of people in St. Cloud that we have led to Christ, and they don't, even when we can come to church, they're, they're not here. They're not interested. They're pursuing their own life. I don't get that. I just don't get it. Because the Lord Jesus Christ and his ministry for us is the most exciting thing in the world. There's nothing that compares to that. What about a twins game? Well, that would be interesting if they even play this year, right? With the coronavirus going on. Oh, I like the twins. I'm a twins fan. But you know what? If they didn't exist, I could still function just fine. Okay. What about the Vikings? Are you kidding? Anyways, don't write me on that. Okay? I'm just joking, of course. Here's the point, though. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords. Nothing compares with Jesus. Nothing compares with fulfilling his will. It is the best life. It's not a perfect life. It's a challenging life. But it is the best life that there is. We need to have a right view of service. We are to serve the Lord wholeheartedly with our God-given abilities, okay? If there is a need, fill the need. Now, I'm going to be talking about some of the specific tools or the specific gifts in just a moment, but let me say this, friend. Don't get so hung up on discovering your spiritual gift, and those are real, but don't get so hung up on that that you're useless otherwise, If you see a need, fill the need, okay? As our top theology teacher, Dr. Mark G. Cameron, told us when we were in Bible college, now here's the theological mind, the great mind, the, the, the one who writes theology books, and here's what he said, quote, when common sense makes good sense, seek no other sense. When common sense makes good sense, seek no other sense. You see a need, fulfill it. Don't say, oh, I'm not gifted in that area. You see somebody who's, who's bawling their eyes out, who's crushed, who's heartbroken over something. And don't look at it and say, well, wait a minute. I don't have the gift of mercy. I'm not going to go try to comfort them. No, no. Yes, there are people who are gifted, uh, as we're going to see, in certain areas. But friend, whether you're gifted in an area or not, that doesn't mean we shouldn't fulfill the need when we see it. When everybody is looking to fulfill the needs that they can, okay, that are in front of them. And we do that, boy, the power of the local church ministry is astounding, what we can accomplish, okay? You don't have to pray about it. Oh, you know, these people, these people really, you know, this person, uh, they're going through this or this one's here or, or, uh, you know, you're, you're talking to a lost person. 
and you know they're not saved and God gives you this opportunity to witness to them, you don't have to say, well, you know what, boy, let me pray about this, whether I ought to witness to them or not. You don't have to pray about what God's already commanded. What you can pray about is maybe wisdom on how to do it, but don't pray whether it's God's will. If he's written it in his word, it is his will. It's just that simple. Hold your place here in Romans 12. Look with me to Colossians chapter 3. We need to have a right view of service. It is our privilege to serve Christ. And friend, we ought to jump in with both feet. We ought to say, you know what? I am in. God has saved me. He's given me eternal life. And I want other people to be saved. And I want to encourage other Christians to faithfully live for Christ. And therefore, I'm going to be a blessing to them to help them stay motivated to where we can all serve Christ together. That's simply what it's about. Colossians 3.23, whatsoever you do, it's, again, he's writing to a local church. Whatsoever you do, do it heartily with all your heart. Do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord you shall receive the reward of the inheritance for you serve the Lord Christ. We inherit everlasting life, in other words, a home in heaven, but then on top of that, there is also reward that you can earn as a believer through faithfully living for Christ. Look with me over to Ephesians chapter four. And here we go, again, talking about gifts and gifted men, all right? And it says in Ephesians 4, verse 11, and he gave, the Lord gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting or the maturing or the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. The body of Christ is the the church. Now the word edify means to build up. Okay, we get our English word today, edifice, from it. It means to, to erect a building. Okay, now here's the point. When we fulfill our responsibilities and when we use the gifts God has given us, we end up accomplishing much for Christ. And it builds up his body. It not only builds up his body spiritually, in other words, through maturing us as individuals, helping us grow, but it also builds up his body numerically. Both of those things are true. Both of those things are true. But what God wants me to do as a believer is to faithfully serve him. And God says, okay, I will use you. You will be a tool in my hand and I will use you to help accomplish my will, my mission for the world. What tool are you in the body? We're gonna look at a few of those in just a minute. But here in Ephesians 4, jump down to verse 16. It says, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplies. Do you see that? Every joint, every believer is supposed to be supplying. According to the effectual working and the measure of every part maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. When we use our abilities to serve Christ, it leads to both church and personal growth. Think about that. Think about that. Friend, if you're saved and you're not growing, you're not being obedient. You're not being available. You're not letting God use you. That's the truth of it. That's the truth of it. Now let's go back to Romans 12 and let's see the next point here. We see it in verses six through eight. We see the right view of spiritual gifts. The right view of spiritual gifts. In verse six, it says, having then gifts differing 
According to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith. All right? Now, what about this issue of spiritual gifts? This is not some mysterious thing like some want you to believe. And not everybody has the same gifts. Now, I did a very detailed study of this when we were in our study in 1 Corinthians. And also, we've done topical series on this issue of spiritual gifts. I can't cover everything in one message on this, especially when that's not the main point. Okay, the main point is simply whatever gifts God's given you, use them. We're not going to do an exhaustive study on each one. We will talk a little bit about a few of them here because they're in the text. But what about this issue of spiritual gifts? What are spiritual gifts? Well, let me say this. A spiritual gift is simply a God-given ability for service. It is a God-given ability for service. It is something that is given to every believer Listen carefully. Lost people, people who are not saved, do not have spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts are different than natural abilities. Okay? Spiritual gifts are different than natural abilities. As an example, someone with a musical or artistic talent. Now, now Mark sang a beautiful special here this morning, and I believe God has, has given him the ability to sing and have a a nice voice and communicate it through song, communicate God's word through song. And that is a wonderful thing. But you will not find musical ability as a spiritual gift in scripture. It is not the same. Can it be used for the glory of God? Absolutely. Our whole bodies are supposed to be used for the glory of God. But it is not specifically a spiritual gift. See, a spiritual gift is something God gives a believer And in a sense, that makes him a certain tool in God's toolbox to accomplish the work. Now, what about this issue of prophecy? Well, at the time when Romans was written, the book of Romans, the New Testament was not yet complete. There was still revelation, scripture that was being given. A prime example of this would even be the, uh, the gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, the book of Revelation. None of those were written. Those were written, those were the last ones written in the early 90s, AD 90s. And so when it comes to prophecy, now this word prophecy can either mean to foretell, which would be prophetic truth, or to tell forth God's word. In other words, to speak God's word out. I think it would refer to both. I think Paul saw it as a a more uh, all-inclusive word having to do with not only foretelling, but foretelling as well. It is to declare a message from God to his people. It is not only to foretell again, but to tell forth. I think of even Agabus in Acts chapter 11, verse 28. Agabus, it says, was a prophet. He was a prophet, and he actually prophesied or told what was going to take place. Now this was, uh, the gift of prophecy was a temporary sign gift until the completion of the canon of scripture. We know that from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And if that raises questions with you, just simply listen to our series on spiritual gifts and, and you'll understand what I'm saying by that. Back to Romans chapter 12 and verse 7, it says, or ministry, let us wait on our ministering, or he that teacheth, on teaching. What is ministry? Ministry, the word ministry simply means service or to serve. 
Some people like to redefine this and give it a different name. They call it the gift of helps. The gift of helps. It's somebody who's, who's gifted, who just seems to always be there and is very helpful in lending a hand when a hand needs to be lent. All right? It's really the gift of helps is a behind-the-scenes kind of spiritual gift. But it, nevertheless, this is a necessary thing. I think the, the uh, gift of ministry or the gift of helps is sort of like the WD-40 of a local church. Okay, it's not a prominent thing, but it helps keep everything running smoothly. Teaching. Well, what is teaching? Teaching is teaching. Okay, it's communicating God's truth to people in an understandable way. Now, I think both men and women are gifted in this. It's not the same as preaching. And of course, God puts limits as far as the audience of uh, women who are gifted teachers. There are gifted teachers who are female in the body of Christ, but they should not be preaching and teaching to men, according to scripture. By the way, don't even send me any mail on it. I will not respond to that because the Bible's clear. The Bible's clear. Women are special and they are gifted in so many ways, but God has made it very clear that leadership in the local church is supposed to be men. And the scriptures are clear on that. But can women teach? Yes. Who should they be teaching? They should be teaching other women and children. And that is spelled out very clearly in the book of Titus chapter two. Back here in Romans 12, verse eight, it says, or he that exhorteth on exhortation, he that giveth, let him do it with simplicity. He that ruleth with diligence, he that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. Let's look at these here. Exhortation. Okay, this is interesting word. It's the exact same word as what we see in verse one where it says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren. The gift of beseeching, okay? The idea is to invite or invoke or call for somebody. It can take the the form of encouragement. It can also take the form of comfort or urging people, okay? There are certain people who are able to encourage people, help them in get going and serving the Lord. They're encouragers in that realm. The gift of exhortation. This next one, giving. It says giving with simplicity. In other words, with single-mindedness that gives its all. Okay? This, the idea of giving, people who are gifted in the area of giving. Now, here's a prime example. Should we all be giving? Yes. But there are certain people God has given an extra gift to in this area to where they are givers in in amazing ways, amazing ways. It is the idea to be liberal and generous. Now, when, you know, liberal today is a dirty word. Uh, We think of it as as a, a synonym for socialism. And maybe, well, not maybe, in a political realm, those are very much related. But liberal is not a dirty word in itself. Okay, liberal means that you are generous. You're a generous person. And we ought to be generous people. Now, political liberals are generous, but it's with other people's money. (laughs) That's where the problem comes in. Socialism is ungodly. Socialism is not biblical. And if you're going to be liberal, be liberal with your own money. All right? Don't expect to be liberal with my money because you're going to have a fight on your hands when it comes to that. But we should be giving with a single-mindedness and a generosity, okay? 
We should be giving faithfully, we should be giving systematically, and we should be giving as the Holy Spirit prompts us. Next one, ruleth, those who rule with diligence. Now this speaks of those in authority. And literally, the word ruleth here means the one who stands in the front. The one who stands in the front. This would refer to the pastor, I believe. And you notice how he's supposed to do his ministry, with diligence. The pastor is to diligently fulfill his role to lead and to shepherd the sheep, sheep through, through uh, leading them, through feeding them the scriptures, and then through warning them through the scriptures. Seven, mercy. This is compassion with cheerfulness. Compassion with cheerfulness. The local church is to be a place where people can come to get help through the body of Christ, to get encouragement to serve the Lord and to do what's right. The greatest source of help is the preaching and teaching, though, of God's word. You know, people who want to get help but don't want to come to church, they don't have pure motives. There's something wrong there. They're not right with God. Friend, if you really want help and you can come to a sound local church, you'll be there. And if you don't want to come but you still want help, you're not right with God. You're going to get the most help if you come to the local church. You're under the ministry of the preaching and teaching of God's word. And then you're part of the body, functioning body together. And it's more than just words, okay? This is a reality of life where God uses it to fulfill things in our lives. The greatest source of help is the preaching and teaching of God's word. I believe the greatest source of counseling is through the pulpit ministries of sound local churches. Not only that, you notice, ruleth with with diligence, okay? So mercy, I've, I've defined that. Now let me also say this about spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts are not given for the edification of self, but for the edification of the body of Christ. In other words, God does not give me a spiritual gift to make myself feel good or to promote myself or to make myself look better than others. No, he gives me the ability he does so that I can be a blessing to other people. It's always about that. We won't turn there unless you're very quick with your fingers, but uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 7, it says this, but the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. In other words, for the profit of all. Notice, and this is important, notice that the Lord gives gifts as he sees fit, okay? Not everyone has the same gift. And so, uh, you know, these churches who will say, well, you know, if you're really saved, you'll have the gift of tongues. Well, number one, the gift of tongues being talked about today is not the gift of tongues in the Bible. Those are real languages, not ecstatic utterances or angelic tongues or whatever like that. And number two, not the Bible is clear. Not everybody had it. Not all believers had the gift of tongues or languages. And so you need to understand that. Not everyone has the same gifts. In 1 Corinthians 14, 12, it says, Even so, ye, for as much as ye are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek that you may excel to the edifying of the church, not yourself. So spiritual gifts are not to make us feel good. Spiritual gifts are to bring growth to the body of Christ, to the church. So here's the point. Okay, I believe God's gifted me. I know this sounds funny for a person to talk about themselves, but nevertheless, I believe God has gifted me to be a pastor, okay, and to, to teach, preach, and teach the word of God. 
The minute I'm doing that for my own self or my own ego, it ceases to be the way God wants it to be. No, God wants me to see it as, Lord, you've given me this ability, this gift, to where I can take that and I can be a blessing to other people so that their lives are benefited by it. See, friends, that's the pure motive of any gift that God has given you, that your life would be used to benefit the lives of others. If you see it as self-exaltation, you're in the flesh. You've hijacked the gift God has given you and you're using it for other means than what he has planned. Now, there are many other spiritual gifts which are not mentioned in the text here, but let me give you just a couple applications in closing today. The first is this. Whatever your gifts and abilities are, they need to be used. Friend, listen. If you don't have a sound local church, my heart goes out to you. Use your gifts to the best of your abilities, okay, in the lives of other people, and God will use you, absolutely. But friend, if you are a part of a sound local church, if you're part of the Northland family and and you come here, let me ask you this. What are you doing with the gifts God's given you? What are you doing with them, with those spiritual abilities God has given you? Are you using them? Let me tell you this. If you don't come regularly, you're not using them. You may be using them a little bit, but not to the level God wants you to use them. And secondly, our time is short. Our time is short. You know, I, uh, uh, I'm not one who tries to fit everything into prophecy, but it's hard not to see the things that we are going through in the world in which we live as things that are going to be leading up to the tribulation period, which is very soon. You're in Romans. Turn with me over to chapter 13. You know, Paul was looking for the Lord to come back in his day. Now, that's an amazing truth when you think about it. But friend, you know, Jesus talked about in Matthew 24 in the Olivet Discourse, he talked, they asked him, what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age, the end of the world? And he started giving them information, okay? One of the things was pestilence, okay? Pestilence, what is that? Plagues, viruses, scourges on the world. Famine would be another one. Now, I don't know if this will happen or not, but they are talking about because of the effects of this virus on the world, worldwide, they're talking about there could end up being famine that will be of biblical proportions. I thought, hmm, isn't it interesting? The, the lost world is using the term biblical. See, God is trying to wake us up. God is trying to get our attention. Earthquakes. We're seeing more earthquakes in the last 50 years than we've seen before. God is trying to get our attention. And then Jesus said this. He lists a few of them and he says this. These are the beginnings of sorrow. The beginnings of sorrow. See, I don't believe the world is going to be just wonderful and everything perfect and then the rapture will take place and overnight everything is terrible. Things will certainly get a lot worse after the rapture when the church is taken out. But friends, I think we're going to be leading up to that, leading up to that time. And I think we are living in the last days. The Bible says in Romans 13, 11, and that knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. He's talking to Christians. Christians, wake up. For now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Therefore, let us, let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. 
Okay? We have a ministry to fulfill. We have a ministry to fulfill. Now let's close with a very familiar verse. Go with me to John chapter 3. You may have been watching today and maybe this is all new to you. Uh, Maybe you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior. Friend, you've probably heard this verse, but I want to read it to you. I want to give it to you and explain it because God wants you to be his child. God loves you and he wants you to live with him forever in heaven and not spend one second separated from him in hell. And the way you have that come true in your life is that you trust or believe in Jesus Christ as your savior. You're trusting in him that he died for your sins, that he paid for all your sins, that he rose from the grave, that there's nothing you can do to save yourself, but you're trusting in him, believing in him to do that for you. And when you do believe in him, he gives you two wonderful promises found in John 3.16. It says this, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him, number one, should not perish, that would mean go to hell, number two, have everlasting life. Would you trust in Christ as your savior right now, right where you sit? Would you trust in Christ? In the quietness of your mind, you can put your faith in Jesus Christ. He knows your thoughts and he will save you. He'll give you everlasting life. Now, if today you're trusting Christ as your savior, Okay. Would you contact us and just let us know that? We want to rejoice with you. We'll also give you some free literature. We would be glad to send that out to you. Well, friends, that concludes this edition of Voice of Assurance. Thanks so much for listening. And would you share this ministry with a friend? To contact us or learn more about our ministry, please visit www.northlandchurch.com. Your prayers and support for this ministry are greatly appreciated. Thank you so much, and God bless you.